0: Two perfect songs to lead us into the study of this text. If you grab your Bible, open to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. This will mark our fifth time together in this series, Clarity. And what I want us to do tonight is we've spent our time just sort of uh, dissecting, if you will, salvation and how to uh recognize it and understand it and know what it is and discern uh, that which is true from that which is false. And though tonight we'll, in many ways, address some of those issues, it will also serve as a great encouragement as we're able to see uh, that which God has accomplished on our behalf and understand um, what that means for us positionally and relationally with him. So let's pray and ask God to help us before we study. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we receive this word, Lord, before us as a perfect gift from you. Thank you for its inerrancy and God, how you have spoken these words directly for our edification. And Father, they are timely and pertinent to our lives tonight, Lord. And I pray that You will take them and You will use them in our lives to make us more like You and to relate to You rightly and correctly. And so, Father, for that to happen, we need Your Spirit to move among us. We need You, Lord, to give us ears to hear and our hearts the ability to receive. For Your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 10, beginning in verse 22. You can read along with me. John ten, twenty-two. The Bible says, Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem as it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. They bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Now, the context for this passage of Scripture is interesting. First of all, it's interesting to me that uh, John gives us this great detail in verse 22 to tell us exactly the the time and the sequence and everything that's going on. And so with this uh, bit of information that we get that it was the time of the Feast of Dedication and that it was winter, what you see here is really uh, the uh, Jew, the Jewish celebration of what's come to be known as Hanukkah. In other words, this dedication, this festival of of dedication or feast of dedication, it's celebrating the rededication of the temple in Jerusalem. And so it was about 170 BC that uh, the Syrians overtook uh, Jerusalem and their leader actually desecrated the temple by sacrificing a pig in the temple. And that created a huge... Problem for the Jews and the Syrians were there. It was, you know, it was a horrible time. And then uh, in about 164, um, the Maccabean revolt came and the Jews were able to regain control of the temple. And when they rededicated the temple, so this is a very, very important time to the Jewish people. When they rededicated the temple, they marked that with this. Feast of Dedication. that happened in the winter. And so it's uh, about this time of year. And then, you know, you go on and the Festival of Lights comes and then that would explain. And I don't have time to get into all the things that have to do with Hanukkah or what the Menorah shows us or all those different things. But basically, just so that you understand what this time is and why this is, uh, it's a very important time. And what, what Jesus is doing here. Uh, with the Jews at the temple because He's about to leave and stay gone until He comes back uh, to face the cross. Now, Jesus, in this moment in time, that's where He is and that's what's going on and that's why He's here. But really what we want to focus on is what He's saying. We want to try to get our heads around what is being uh, taught here to us in this passage of Scripture. Scripture. And Jesus is, in a sense, telling us a lot of important information about those who are actually saved, those who are born again, those who are sons and daughters of God, those who have uh, salvation. He's telling us that. He says to these religious elite, remember, in verse 22, I told you and you do not believe you see the first problem that Jesus addresses with these Jewish very religious very elitist people is their unbelief not their unbelief about things of God not their unbelief about religion not their unbelief about any other thing but about Him the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness of me so He's telling us what's at issue here What's at issue is their belief, but specifically, not just general belief. And this is very important because in this conversation about uh, trying to work through salvation with somebody or your own salvation, belief comes in. And that's why we dealt with the fact that uh, even the demons believe. So belief is very important. And so it's belief in Him... But He says in verse 26, "...but you do not believe, because you are not of My sheep, as I have said to you." Now, Jesus is saying that first and foremost, you must believe in Him. You must believe in Me. And if you believe in Me, what does that mean? Because we've talked about how uh, a lot of times people will maybe quote John 3.16 and they'll say, well, I believe, so therefore I'm not going to perish and I'll have eternal life and we've talked about that there's a lot that needs to be said about the word believe. In other words, what does that mean, believe? Well, you know, what sort of uh, belief is that? Because there's a lot of different ways that you can believe things. Well, what he means is that you believe in him, that he is God, or that he is who he says he is, or that the things that He says are from God. It doesn't really matter which way you want to state that because they all lead you back to the same place. If you believe Him, then that implies that you believe what He says. And if you believe what He says, then that implies that you believe that He's God because He says that He's God. So all those things fit together. So, for example, He says in verse 30, I and my Father are one. He means, I'm God. Now, some people like a Jehovah's Witness that comes to your door to try to pawn off their uh, false teaching and their literature to you, will try to make you believe that in verse 30, Jesus is speaking metaphorically. Kind of in the way that me and my wife are one. He doesn't mean literally one. But the reason that we that a third grader knows that that's not the case is by the very next Verse. Just look down at the next verse, verse 31. The Jews respond to this statement by taking up stones. They're going to stone him. And why? Jesus said, well, many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of these works are you going to stone me? And they answered the question. The Jews answered and said, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself God. So the first time a Jehovah Witness pointed to that passage of Scripture and said to me, Jesus is speaking metaphorically. I said, well, are those stones metaphoric stones? Is the response of the Jews metaphoric? Well, of course it's not. And so obviously, Jesus, they know exactly what He's talking about. And He knows exactly what He's talking about. And everybody with half a brain knows exactly what He's talking about. It's right there. But what's interesting to me is, I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but this passage of Scripture is one of the most encouraging, one of the most phenomenal promises in the life of a believer that exists in all of Scripture. I mean, this is a mountaintop Scripture in all that it says for those who belong to God through salvation. And yet the earthly response to this statement is stoning. I mean, it's just so shocking that, you know, it's like the greatest news that could have ever been spoken is spoken to religious people. And the response to that is we're going to kill you. You know, if you if you ever doubt the depravity of the human heart, my goodness, the Bible is replete with illustrations that are just mind boggling of how depraved humanity can be. But we're going to move forward and and look from verse 27 on and we're going to see some things about being in the fold of Jesus or being saved or being born again. That when we are His sheep, certain things exist according to Jesus. The first one is, is that we are connected to Him. Now I want you to look at verse 27. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. Now, the thing about this passage of Scripture, I mean, twenty-seven, 28, it's just so much that if you just read it fast, it's almost like, you know, it's like kids Christmas morning just shredding through the wrapping paper and opening presents so fast. They're just going from one present to the next that they don't even pay attention to what the last thing they they get to the end. And they're like, now, what did I get? You know, they're looking around like, what? That's what this passage is like for me. Because I just get stuck on every single thing. I mean, I can't even move. I'm going, my sheep hear my voice. And I just sit there and think, He speaks to me. He speaks to me. That if I can hear His voice, then that means He speaks to me. And the fact that God would speak to me as just, it's mind-boggling. It's just so fantastic. He says, my sheep, they hear my voice. Illustrating what we talked about this morning, that God desires relationship, that He speaks to His sheep, that He talks to them, that He wants a relationship. He doesn't ignore them. He doesn't pretend that they don't exist. He doesn't shy away from them, but He engages with them. From the very beginning, he engages with them. Even as we're, you know, we're learning to listen and we're learning to hear, he's engaged and we hear his voice, he says. And then he says, and I know them. And this really staggers me because that doesn't seem like what ought to be there, does it? Don't you think that this passage would say, if you or I wrote it, it would say, my sheep hear my voice because they know me. Right? But it doesn't say that. It says that my sheep hear my voice, but I know them. You see, in other words, if you, if you shout across the room at somebody and they turn around, you would say to me, see, I told you that They knew me. Right? What Jesus does is He shouts across the room and they turn around and He goes, See, I told you that I knew them. In other words, He flips it around. He's he's saying this in a way that sort of... It's just even more shocking than the fact that we could know Him because a lot of people claim to know Him. But that's not what's at issue here. What's at issue is that He knows us. So like he tells the prophet Jeremiah, he says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. He, he talks to Jeremiah about, oh, I, I know you. And I've always known you. And I ordained the things that I've called you to. That, that I've been involved and engaged with you before there was a you. And so he's saying about his sheep. They, they hear my voice, but I know them. Look back at, at verse 14. Look, look up at verse 14. Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and I am known by my own. Now look at that verse for a second. You notice that that's a very strategic, specific order. He, number one, is a good shepherd. Number two, he knows his sheep. Then his sheep know him. But his sheep don't know him before he knows them. You understand? That precedes us knowing Him as Him knowing us. Which ought to be good. Because again, if it were the other way around, here's what would happen. We would then find ourselves with this, this compulsion that, that we needed to, uh, you know, we needed to, we need to expedite knowing Him. That it's incumbent upon us to know Him. No, no. He knows you. You hear His voice and He knows you. Remember in a few weeks ago when we were dealing with salvation and we talked about Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus is uh, blasting those who come to Him and profess to know Him and then are just utterly astonished and they... You know, and he says, not everyone that comes to me and says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Did you ever notice that at the end of that passage, here's what Jesus says in verse 23, he says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. He doesn't say you never knew me. That's important information, because whenever I'm having a conversation with someone and they're telling me, oh no, I know I'm saved, oh no, I know I'm a Christian, oh, and here's how I know, because I did this and I did that, when I, back then at this time and this point in my life, I did these things and that's why I know I'm a Christian and part of that is, is that because I know. The question is not, do you know Jesus? The question is, does He know you? You see, every little nuance about The doctrine of salvation removes the eye and puts it on Him. And this is why man's attempt to, you know, twist this around and pervert this into some uh, easy believism or some way to bring people to false assurance, it never can lead to peace. There's no possible way. I mean, it just doesn't. People walk around, they don't, I mean, when people tell me things like that, they don't believe that. They don't believe that. I don't believe for a second that they believe that they're a Christian. They're just trying to get rid of me. I mean, you you actually get down to brass tacks with them and you say, "Now you. now when you die, what's going to happen to you? I mean, in the truth of that, I mean, people get super honest, man, in the hospital. They get super honest. They don't play games. And those people that say, oh, yeah, I know I'm a Christian. I did this and I did that. Boy, when they're laying there and I see you and all they can do is nod their head like this and you're having a conversation with them. I said, now, what's going to happen to you when you die? You know what they say? I'm not sure. I don't know. They have zero assurance. So the first thing that Jesus is pointing out about His sheep is that they're connected to Him. The second thing He's pointing out is that they're committed to Him. Look at what He says. My sheep hear My voice and I know them. And then He says, and they follow Me. In other words, this hearing is connected to this responding. That there's a response to the hearing. That... You know, in other words, when a shepherd calls the name of his sheep, his sheep don't, you know, sheep are maybe the dumbest animal on the planet. That's true. But they respond very specifically and strategically to their shepherd, unlike my dog. So... Oscar may be doing something that he's not supposed to do. And this is how this usually goes. Uh, Oscar and my kids have one thing in common. They have a greater tendency to ignore my wife's voice than they do mine. For some reason, all the creatures that live in my house have a much greater fear of my voice. And so I get cracked up at Lisa because she'll say, Oscar, and he'll look up. And then he will go right back to what he was doing. Like he acknowledges the fact that she's... Which, you know, I'm, my kids kind of do the same thing sometimes. You know, They know, but they go right back to doing what they're doing. And maybe it's the way that I say uh, their name. I don't know. But when I say Oscar's name, he freezes. Because he's not sure, uh, you know... I, I want Oscar to understand that he's always one decision away from death. That's what I want Him to think. That's that's how our relationship works. I'm just telling you, I mean, it's very effective. So that's how we relate to one another. We're very good buddies, but I'm in control, okay? So Jesus is saying that as a shepherd, when His sheep hear His voice, here's what they don't do. They don't just acknowledge the fact that, oh, I heard that. And they go back to doing what they're doing. You see, he's already stated the fact that my sheep hear my voice. Now he's moving on to the next thing. And they follow me. So we've went from hearing to following. So they, they don't hear and then just go back to what they were doing. They hear and respond. They follow. And so, you know, we think about this relationship that exists between a shepherd and sheep. You know, you don't have to know a lot about sheep to know that this relationship has certain things that are just built into it. There's just no negotiation. A shepherd assumes sole responsibility for the sheep. In other words let's suppose that a shepherd has his sheep feeding in this field over here and suddenly the, and over time they begin to eat down the, the food supply in this field and so the shepherd doesn't just stand there and think, you know, well, when are these idiots going to realize they need to move to this field over here? He has responsibility for moving the sheep to where they need to go. He is solely responsible for taking care of the sheep, to leading the sheep to where the green pastures are, right? That's what the Bible teaches. It's His responsibility. Now, when danger comes, whose responsibility is it to fend off the danger that comes against the sheep? So if a wolf comes or a bear comes or a whatever comes... The sheep have no defense mechanism. The sheep have no... They bear no responsibility in any of this. It's not like, well, the sheep have to... You know, they have to run really fast or they have to do certain things. And then if they do those things, then the shepherd... The shepherd is solely responsible for the sheep, for moving them to where they need to be to eat, for protecting them from danger, to making sure that all the needs of the sheep are met. If a sheep is left to its own and wanders off into the wilderness... I mean, I'm just telling you, these are specific things the Bible teaches. Everything about the relationship between a shepherd and a sheep is not taught in Scripture. But enough for me to become a pretty decent sheep herder, I would think, is because all of these things are taught. What happens if a sheep wanders off? Is it the sheep's responsibility to find their way back home? No. We know this. The shepherd assumes sole responsibility for taking care of the sheep, for protecting the sheep, if the sheep get lost, for going to get the sheep, to bring the sheep back. I mean, it's all the shepherd's responsibility. It's not the sheep's. Which is a brilliant reason why God uses this relationship to talk about our relationship to Him through salvation. Just to make sure that we don't get tangled up and start thinking that, well, now, wait a minute. Maybe maybe I did do this, or maybe I did do that, or maybe, maybe it's because of this, or... Whatever the case may be, bringing ourselves into it is so oftentimes becomes the problem. So Jesus says that his sheep are connected to him. They're committed to him. And then here's really what I want to talk about tonight. Thirdly, they're confirmed by him. In other words, everything about this relationship is made certain by the shepherd, not by the sheep. Let me show you what happens. And this is where Jesus goes in this passage. So He sort of goes from connected to committed and then He goes to just let's just lay this down. And I'll explain to you some of the things that as I looked into this passage and I began to see all these areas where if He wouldn't have said what He said, if He just stopped in verse 27, we might have a problem. So in verse 28 He says, and I give them Eternal life. I told you, this is just like unwrapping presents. I mean, it just keeps coming. Jesus says, I give them eternal life. Now, let's understand what we're talking about uh, with regards to eternal life or with regards to salvation or with regards to being a sheep in this flock. In other words, we're talking about a person who has been born again. Someone who's connected and committed and confirmed is not someone who joined a church, filled out a card, prayed a prayer, had an experience, none of those things. Maybe those things are part of it, but what I'm talking about is a person who, according to John chapter 3, has been born again, not of flesh, but of the Spirit. That they have been made into a new creation through salvation. So... We're not talking about someone who professes salvation. We're talking about someone who possesses salvation. He says, I give them eternal life. That's important because you need to know who the them is. That's who the them is there. But now once we are sure who the them is, those who were born again, then we can look at all the great things in this. The fact the word give and then the fact eternal. Jesus says, I give. Now, the reason he says, I give, I'm sure, is because if he didn't say, I give, then some sort of way we'd mix this around and we'd bring ourselves into it and we'd uh, finagle away to make it to where we somehow earned it. You see, if the them is those who have been truly born again, then what do we know about people who are truly born again based on uh, what we know either about ourselves as children of God or what the Bible teaches about us as children of God. Well, we know that eternal security is not earthly perfection. You see, that's important to understand, that eternal security is not earthly perfection. In other words, sometimes what happens is people maybe get mixed up with this idea that, well, when I'm saved, then God's going to solve all my problems. When I say earthly perfection, I mean in your eyes. This is why so much of my time is spent unraveling the misconceptions that people have brought to, you know, brought maybe from somewhere else into this flock and then we have to unravel all that because they were sold a, a false bill of goods. Somebody told them. You ever meet somebody that's just utterly and completely Bitter towards God. I mean, they are bitter. Man, they got, they got church experience. They've got some biblical knowledge, but they're bitter towards God. I meet them all the time. I had a long conversation with a sister in our church yesterday about somebody she's ministering to in the hospital who could die at any moment, who fits this exact bill Perfectly. And you know what I told her? I said, she's telling me all these things about their conversation. I said, you know what the problem is? The problem is this lady's bitter towards God. And she kind of was like, well, what do you mean? I said, well, let me explain it to you. She's bitter towards God and here's why she's bitter. And I need you to understand why she's bitter so that you can talk to her effectively. She's bitter at God because she's been told that if she would just surrender her life to Christ or receive Jesus as Lord or get saved or whatever it is that God's going to solve all her problems. And she's laying there with more problems than I can even process. I mean, every possible thing that could go wrong in somebody's life is wrong in her life. And so every time you come in and go, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. She wants to punch you in the face. Make sense? Sure. I'd want to punch you in the face, too. I don't want to hear that. Because I'm laying there and everything's a catastrophe. And you're going to come in with your, oh, well, let me, well, no, that's not the case. That doesn't fly. That's not true. In this world, you will have tribulation, John 16. So here's the problem. When somebody thinks that salvation is going to fix all their problems, they're going to end up every time bitter at God, lost and bitter at God. Because that's not true. The Bible never says that. And so you have to know, born again, earthly security is not earthly perfection. So it's not outwardly, it doesn't mean you're going to behave perfectly, it's going to mean you still make mistakes, but even more than that, it's not earthly perfection in the way that things aren't going to go the way you think they ought to go. Just because you got saved, God's not going to fix all, all of what you see as problems. It's going to change the way God uses those problems in your life, but I mean, you know this. And then thirdly, eternal security. It's not a, it's not a prize that you achieve, but it's a gift we receive. So that's why he says, I give them. That's the them. I, as Jesus, gives. He's making sure that there's no misunderstanding about how eternal life is Possessed. There's only one way a person gets it, and it's a gift. It's not earned in any way, shape, or form, which is why he's being so specific. You see, this whole passage deals really with, especially this part in verse 28, it deals with eternal security. It's a passage of Scripture that should make you. Tonight, if you are certain of your salvation, just be so very grateful and so very thankful. Jesus says, I give them, those born again, eternal life. I used to say all the time, it's eternal life. It's like an everlasting gobstopper. It doesn't matter how long you keep it in your mouth. It doesn't matter how hard you lick it or how much you carried around in your pocket or it's everlasting. It never disappears. It never goes away. It never wears out. It never shrivels up. It doesn't shrink. It doesn't change. It's everlasting. I mean, that's the beauty of Willy Wonka. Well, that's what eternal life is. It's eternal. So if you could lose it, it wouldn't be eternal. But more specifically than that, If you could lose it, then what would that imply? In other words, if you could lose it, then it implies that securing it to the end is incumbent upon you. Right? I mean, just think about it. Just just be real simple. Because you're going to have this conversation with somebody. If you can lose your salvation, you don't have to argue about all the stuff that has to do it. Just if someone says you can lose your salvation, the next statement out of your mouth is, then that means that anyone who gets to heaven, who makes it through the minefield of life and makes it, that means that it is because of them that they made it. That it had something to do with them, right? It has to. And we know that simply can't be. Now, so if you can lose your salvation and you make it to heaven, then that means your security is dependent on you because you did something right... You navigated your way somehow to get there. And if you get there in a world where you can lose your salvation, then when you get there, you cannot argue the reality that you deserve at least some of the credit. Right? If you could lose it and you made it. Right? In other words, if we play a game that you can't lose, that means you're not playing with me because I don't play those kind of games. But let's suppose that, you know, you were... Uh, you know, playing uh, t-ball in this new and wonderful politically correct world we have where no one keeps score and you can't lose, which is probably good in t-ball, but I don't know at some point very soon after that becomes a disaster in my mind. But anyway, you can't lose. So then if you win, who cares? You couldn't lose. But if you could lose and you win, it must have something to do with you. So if you could lose your salvation and you get to heaven, you deserve at least some of the credit when you get there. You know, what did Mr. T say? I pity the fool who tries to get credit when they get there. Of course, they wouldn't be there, but if they did, it would be utterly disastrous. So Jesus says, I give them eternal life. I know I'm going slow, but my goodness, this is good. And they shall never perish. Hmm, what does this mean? Now, it's eternal life. And so here's what the false teachers will tell you. Because here's how they try to argue with me when they used to come to my house. So now I have to come to your house so when they come to visit you, then I get to talk to them. Because they don't come to my house anymore. Maybe I should just start going down to their temples. That's what I should do. I should go down there and just, you know go down to uh, where the Jehovah's Jehovah's Witness convene and, uh, you know, just act like I'm a prospect. At least then I could talk to somebody. Because here's what they're going to tell you. They're going to say, it's eternal life when you get it. They're saying, oh, no, no, it's eternal life. I'm not arguing that. But it's... Not eternal until you get it. But there's a big question mark as to whether or not you're going to get it. That's what they say. So Jesus knew that. So Jesus says, no, no, they shall never perish. Which means that once you're His sheep, you can't lose, right? Because even someone who believes you can lose your salvation... If you say, what happens to a person who loses their salvation? What are they going to say? Oh, well, they go to hell. Wait a second. Let's go back to the Bible. The Bible says that they shall never perish, which means they can't go to hell. That's impossible, right? Yeah. Listen, they're not going to want to talk to you after this. It's going to be a disaster. You're going to go, let's go to John chapter 10 and talk for a minute. And they're going to be running, screaming to your neighbor's house. They shall never perish. But this doesn't seal the deal. You understand? I want you to see all three dimensions of this and then we'll be done. But this is very important. We've got dimension number one where Jesus says, I give them eternal life. Are you with me? I give them. They didn't earn it. They didn't get it because of anything they did. I give them as a gift eternal life. But people are going to argue about what does eternal mean? When does it become eternal? So dimension number two is Jesus says now, and they shall never perish, which means that means they can't lose. They can't go to hell. They can't Miss some way because there's no way for them to perish. That's dimension number two. But now, if you've been given something as a free gift that's extraordinarily valuable, and then the giver of the gift tells you that this gift will never perish. It will never go away. There's still a problem in this equation. Okay, you don't understand. Let's try it this way. I give my wife, this is very hypothetical, a 10-carat diamond. She's not in here, so let's roll with it. And you're not going to tell her. So I give my wife a 10-carat diamond, right? Right? Actually be like a diamel, whatever those things are called if I give it. Anyway, I give my wife a 10 carat diamond, right? So she then is like, wow. I don't, it's probably way more than wow, but that's all I got. So she gets this 10 carat diamond, right? I'm going like this. It's not like this, but this 10 carat diamond, she gets it. And I say, this diamond will never perish. In other words, Diamonds don't like wear out. The batteries don't go dead in them. They don't, you know, they don't fizzle out over time. In a sense, this diamond is eternal, right? Are you with me? Yes, but the problem's not solved because there's still a danger. She's got the diamond. I've given it to her freely. She owns it completely. And the diamond is eternal and nothing's going to happen to the, the diamond's not going to fizzle out or wear out or dim out. But what's still the, the danger that's out there? Someone could steal the diamond. In which case, she would then cease to reap the benefits of owning the diamond, right? Which is why Jesus says, what next? And no one can snatch them out of the palm of my hand. You see, because the only other possibility... In this fortress that Jesus makes is that some external force could take this away, this gift away. And so he says, nope, not going to happen. They'll never perish. I give them eternal life. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. This basically checkmate. It's this unbreakable, it's this unbreakable fortress of salvation. That my sheep hear my voice. They're connected to me. I know them. It's not about them knowing me. It's about me knowing them. I know them. They hear my voice and they respond. They're committed to me. They respond. Their response doesn't make them know me. They respond because I know them. Their response is not based on anything that they do. Their response is to everything I do. In other words, who initiated the conversation? Jesus didn't say, I hear their voice. No, no. They're not talking. He's talking. He initiates the conversation. He starts the talking. He says, you hear Him. And when you hear Him, because He knows you, you respond to Him. It's all because of Him. But then He confirms everything by building this fortress, He says. And then I... Me freely give them, those who are born again, eternal life. This eternal life ensures that they will never perish. And just in case you're afraid that somebody's going to break in, some power, some enemy, some evil is going to come along and snatch that away. Negative. Nothing, no one, no person, place, thing, nothing can snatch Them out of my hand. That's pretty, pretty awesome. Then he says, my father, who, by the way, has given them to me, which he says repeatedly in the New Testament, that all those my father has given to me, I will not lose. Because he's Jesus and he's perfect and he won't lose them. But that's I'm just in this place right here that my father who's given them to me is greater than all. Just in case you're thinking, well, now, when you say no one can snatch him out of my hand, do you mean my no one? You know, do you just mean no one, humanly speaking? I mean, what no one? Let's, let's, let's quantify the no one. Well, Jesus says, well, my father's given him to me and he's greater than all. That means you just put anything in the category you want to and he's greater. This is why... Paul goes to such lengths in Romans 8 to make sure that we understand that nothing can separate us from the love of God. He goes through all the things, created, uncreated, above the earth, below the earth, just to make sure that you know this. He's greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So they're in my hand. My Father, who's greater than all, He gave them to me. But in case you're worried, nothing can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. So basically... What Jesus is saying is that when you become his sheep, he's got you and there's absolutely nothing you can do about it and there's nothing anyone else or anything else can do about it and you will never, ever, ever for all of eternity get out of his hand. Not because you are trying to hang on to him, but because he's got a grip on you that can never be broken. That's good. That's really, really good. And so here's what this passage teaches us about salvation. This is why we should be so passionate about this, this issue. Because what matters more than this? I mean, we talk about, well, you know, people's eternity hangs in the balance. Well, yes, their eternity hangs in the balance. But, but I live and pastor in the Bible belt where there are multitudes of people wandering around who are dressing their life up. They're wearing sheep's clothing, to use Jesus' own analogy, but they're wolves. They're wolves. They're not connected to Him. They're not committed to Him. And they're not confirmed by Him. And so... There's only one thing that can be greater than having a relationship with God. And that's knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have a relationship with God. And you know what? The only thing that's better than knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have a relationship with God is that you can never lose the relationship you have with God. That this is why Jesus is the good shepherd. This is why He's mighty to save. He doesn't just save. He's mighty to save. Because when He saves, this is what He does. And anyone who would try to tangle this around in any way, shape, or form or try to dilute this down. You simply, you simply can't do it. You cannot bring man, man's accomplishments, man's works into this equation. It will not work. It cannot work. There's no possible way. Just simple, basic, third-grade grammar defies that from happening. You cannot in any way, shape, or form say that there's a possibility that a person could lose their salvation. Simple third grade grammar defies that. Jesus has given us here and in many other places, but here an unbreakable, absolutely impenetrable fortress of salvation. To which I say to you tonight, Go and live and be as the people who you are in Christ. If you tonight are saved and you know that you are saved, rejoice, rejoice in that. And listen, why why are you fearful? What are you afraid of? What, what trepidation do you have? I mean, this is what baffles my mind. Is that people who would espouse everything that I have said tonight verbally will then turn their life and say, there's no way I'm going to a foreign country to share the gospel. There's no way that I can ever get over this fear that I have because of whatever it is that's happened to me that's gripped my life by fear. There's no way that I can step out on a limb or live in any way that may seem reckless to those around me. You know, I know God's able to do that, but really? Really? Does that sound like somebody that's in the unbreakable grip of Jesus? Do you really think that when I step on that airplane, that there's one molecule in me that's worried about it going down? Not one. Not one molecule. When I'm walking through the jungle and I know that every step I take, there could be something that could bite me or sting me that would lead to my imminent death because I'm a gazillion miles away from a hospital. Nope. Does that sound crazy to you? Cause what sounds crazy to me is being afraid. That sounds utterly crazy to me. Afraid that if I, not just go, because maybe God didn't call you specifically to go, but engaging in that, to, that if I, if I trust my, if I, if I give generously, then I might not have enough left for me. If I, I mean, just apply this to any area of life. What are you worried about? Why are you on one hand espousing that you believe that you are in this unbreakable grip of God and then the other hand, you're trying to manage and manipulate your life to protect yourself against something? What are you afraid of? Last time I checked, Jesus said, fear no one or nothing except for me, the one who can kill the body and the soul. I take that to heart. And when I don't, I just remind myself, wait a minute. Why am I afraid? When, when I, I'm not sure when my kids won't answer their phone. And I'm not sure where they are. I'm not sure what's going on. Why am I afraid? I start thinking, wait a minute. Who's gripping who here? Oh, I've got to grip them. Don't you see how ridiculous it is? Let the Word of God set you free tonight. Live. Live as His people, as His children. He is the Good Shepherd. He assumes all responsibility for you. Case closed. That's good news. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You for the reality tonight. That you are the good shepherd. That you, Lord, take sole responsibility for your sheep. And Father God, thank you, thank you, thank you. That you give and what you give is eternal. And that it will never perish. And that it cannot be stolen away. And that we do not have to strive tonight to figure out how to hold on to you. You've got us. And you will always have us. And you never lose any who have been given to you by the Father. Thank you for the reality of who you are and what you accomplished on the cross. And Lord, may the, the fact that you died on the cross, may the fact that we celebrate Christmas... May all of that just be so elevated in our hearts right now as we think about what has been accomplished on our behalf. Father, I pray that You will slay the demon of fear. That You will just give us, Lord, a heart to trust You in Your Word and what You've said. And to realize... That you came not just to give life, though you did give life, but life more abundantly. And so we thank you for that, Father. We thank you. So Lord, we just pause in this moment and we we just consider in our hearts, what is this implication tonight for me? How great is it that if I know that I'm saved, all this is true about me. God We could not have possibly heard anything better than what you said in John 10. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Now, O Lord, as we turn our hearts to prayer, as we think about those whom we might intercede on their behalf tonight, Lord God, Father, help us. Help us to pray confidently, boldly. Help us to pray ridiculously large prayers and to realize that all things are possible in You. That nothing's too hard for You, Lord. That You, we don't just say that You defeated sin and death. You actually defeated it. You put it in checkmate. That it has no hold on us. No claim against us. Because we're Your sheep. You're our shepherd. So we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.